There's so many people in society right now that are just so scared to show emotion and so scared to, to be themselves, and you shouldn't be. But everyone in their own time, it takes time to learn who you want to be and what, what you believe in. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Addiction is a condition that has extensive consequences. Relationships can be torn apart and trust shattered. The good news is that there is hope for the addict and for the ones who love them, and no one ever has to walk through recovery alone. Our guests this week have both experienced addiction firsthand, one who battled with addiction himself, and another who stood by as an addict she loves spun farther and farther out of control. Pro skateboarder Ryan Sheckler and Pastor Henriette Chapelhaman. When Ryan Sheckler was just 18 months old, he found his dad's old school skateboard and taught himself to push it around using one knee and eventually stood up on the skateboard. When he was 13, Ryan became one of the world's youngest professionals in the sport, winning multiple competitions. At 17, he was the star of his own MTV reality show, The Life of Ryan. While his talent and fame grew, so did the lack of structure that was around him. He was pulled into the drinking and party lifestyle that came with his success and eventually found himself with an alcohol addiction that threatened to bring down all the hard work he had put into his sport and into his life. Ryan shares his journey to the moment where he knew things had to change. I am Ryan Sheckler. I'm 30 years old. I skateboard professionally. I live in San Clemente, California. And um, man, I've been skating for 28 years now. I turned pro when I was 13 and uh, that's kind of when the uh, whirlwind started of my life and my career and had no idea the uh, amazing life lessons I was going to learn and, and be able to uh, overcome in that period of time. This last, uh, this last 28 years has been packed. I, I was always a crazy kid. Like, so as a, as a young kid, I was always climbing up buildings, jumping off things, like on the roof, Loved the trampoline, loved just anything that was, I guess, adrenaline-based. And so I think when I was six, maybe turning seven, I won my first contest. And the emotions that I went through that day were so crazy because I was prepared, I was ready for the contest, and then the second, right before they called my name, I started crying. And I was so emotional, but not like sad. I was just, I couldn't control it. I was just, this is how much I wanted it. And my dad hugged me. We talked and it was all good and we said a prayer and then I went out and I won my first contest and I was so in tune with the Lord and going to church and then realized that skateboarding was my gift. That's something I did know. I did know that was my gift because it came so fluently to me. Not easy, but fluent. It was like I could figure it out, you know? And around 13 is when I started getting really kind of noticed in the skate world especially and my goal was just to honestly, sounds crazy now, but it was my goal, you know? I wanted to be as good, if not better, than my neighbors. And my neighbors were all four years older than me. And so they were the big kids. And I wanted to be like the big kids. And a lot of them stopped skating and I just never stopped. And then I turned pro. I turned pro and I had no idea, you know? Like I didn't know I was turning pro at 13. I would goof around skating with my friends and tell them 21 sounds like a good age to turn pro, you know, like as a kid. like. I gotta put the time in, but that's already how I knew. Like, I knew I had to put some serious time in if I ever wanted to be pro, and I thought maybe 20 years would get me there. And then it was 13. And then that year of 13, I won every single pro contest as the rookie. And then it just, the doors opened. 
And then all of a sudden, I didn't even I didn't even realize that years went by where I had traveled six or seven months out of the whole year, and then it was just over. And then all of a sudden, I'm 18 and I'm buying a house, and I had no structure, like no adult around, no one telling me like, "Hey guys, you shouldn't party. Hey, you shouldn't stay up this late. Hey, you shouldn't do this." There was no one telling me that. So we learned by ourselves. And I feel that from 13 to 18, 13 to 22, maybe I kind of fell out of track with with the practice of praying and the practice of actually getting to know Christ and, and really living, believing that, that he was dictating my life. Um, I really thought I was in control, and that's, that's the huge step for me, was admitting that I was powerless, and I couldn't do it without him. I could not do anything else without him. My life, my life literally got into shambles. When you're in the state of, of abusing any substance, for me it was alcohol, when you're in that state, um, your brain does this weird thing where it won't even allow you to have the chance to say no. It won't, like, it's not even a thing. You just, like, you know you shouldn't have a drink. You know you shouldn't. But my brain's not doing the whole thing of, like, well, let's break it down, right? Like, here's the pros, here's the pros, here's the pros, here's the cons. Like, all the cons. Like, you don't do that with an al- alcoholic mind. It doesn't do that. It's just, like, all right, well... I guess we're I guess we're gonna have a drink, and then it's it's that whole backstep process. And for me, I always had super good friends around. I had amazing friends around, and they just you know they couldn't really see that it was a problem because I was getting my stuff done. You know, I was still being functional. I was still doing it. Um, but yeah, I got caught up. I got caught up, and and like I said before, that was from having really no guidance. I had no guidance. We had friends that wanted to hang out and it was cool because we were going on private planes and we're getting invited to all this cool stuff and you know you kind of lose track of reality and and as a kid with no base on like how an adult is supposed to be I didn't I didn't know where I was but I've always had this incredible group of friends like when I checked into rehab my mom she picked me up from the airport which was a really traumatic scary experience um but it was the best experience of my life, you know, watching my mom turn around and leave me at this place that was supposed to help me and like watching her turn out of the gate gives me the chills, you know, it makes me want to cry because it was so gnarly. But that was it. The second she turned her car out and I was a wreck. I had absolutely hit a wall and decided that I needed to fix something because I had started to lose my passion for skateboarding. I've been skateboarding since I was two years old. And all of a sudden, this alcohol is going to take me away from the biggest passion of my life? No, it wasn't acceptable to me. I was an emotional wreck. I got this wave, and it just happened again right now. I got this wave over me that was just, you're good. You're in the right spot. Thank you for listening. I'm going to help you. And then it was on. It was on. I had no detox days, no nothing. I just stayed the night, first night, went straight into the meetings the next day, right in the group, and just being vulnerable. And that's the biggest thing, too, I learned from my experience through, you know, that recovery was, was being vulnerable. It's not, it's not lame to be vulnerable. It's not, it's not bad to tell people how you're thinking or to, like, really express emotion or to cry. Like, it's not bad. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. It's, but... Yeah, I mean, my mom gave me that Jesus calling right when I got there. And that first night I started reading it, and I just, I didn't even pick a day. I just started reading it. I just wanted, I wanted, 
I wanted it. I wanted to feel something. And I started feeling it, and then I read it every single day that I was there. So my mom had been reading Jesus Calling to us. Like, she would send me little, like, excerpts on my phone. So, like, I knew about Jesus Calling. I just never had my own book. And then once I got it at rehab, I did read. Um, the first day that I was there was February 3rd. And um, that's so crazy. I just started reading this again. And it really, like, th this, is, this is crazy, actually. This is crazy. I am with you and for you. You face nothing alone, nothing. When you feel anxious, know that you are focusing on the visible world and leaving me out of the picture. The remedy is simple. Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Verbalize your trust in me, the living one who sees you always. I will get you safely through this day and all your days, but you can find me only in the present. Each day is a precious gift from my Father. How ridiculous to grasp for future gifts when today is set before you. Receive today's gifts gratefully, unwrapping it tenderly and delving into its depths. As your Savior this gift, you find me. Yeah, so it was like you face nothing alone. And I was like, that's why I got that crazy sense of calm when my mom left. I was straight into the room, and obviously you had to do all the intake and all that noise, but, like, once you actually get to get into your room and, like, have that first, like, <sighs> okay, I'm here, now what? And then I opened this book and saw that I wasn't alone. I'm like, ah, I'm in the right spot. Five days after being there, I got a call from Michael Phelps. He was a friend, and he was very proud of me for being in there. And then, um... He sent me a couple of Rick Warren books, and he sent me another copy of Jesus Calling and explained to me how he went through similar, similar things. And in my mind, I'm like, this is Captain America. Like, this is Aquaman. Like, this guy, went, this guy went through what I'm going through? And then it clicked. I'm like, oh, none of us are alone in this world. Like, we are not alone. And we're supposed to go through this pain to be able to teach this lesson can't waste the pain. I do not want to waste the pain that I've been through. So whether that means through this experience, through an injury, coming back, how can I help you recover from your injury because I've been through it? This is my ministry, honestly. It's like being in the place I'm in now from being through what I've been through. And like I can share it and I love sharing it. And kids come to me and they ask me for help. Everyone's going to go through pain. We all go through pain. For me, pain is my biggest teacher. And so, um, yeah, I went through the program and then just learned. I learned. I, I learned everything I needed to do and everything I needed to be and become to have this next chapter, which is, you know, my 30s to 30 to 60, see what happens here. So, but yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the Lord. And it, it's a struggle. But if you, if you really submit and give your life to Christ and just really believe daily that like you get another chance, you're gonna make some good decisions. And you know, that's been one of my, my huge things too coming out of that whole process was be where your feet are. So simple, be where your feet are, which means right here, right now, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm here in this room with you guys doing this. And that keeps me present, that keeps me in the mode. And 
I just find myself saying that to myself all day long. I'll be standing somewhere and I'm thinking about something else. I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Be where your feet are. And the second I calm down and like realize where I'm at and I'm present, then things start happening. But it's not until you're present. It took me 30 years to learn. I went to a Make-A-Wish Foundation event where I got to grant a wish. And I was 17 years old and I was tripping. I was tripping because I couldn't fathom that this, this beautiful girl, Casey, who had been battling with leukemia and just chemo and oh, just the gnarliest things, wanted to hang out with me at a skate park for her wish. And yeah, I was pretty nervous. I was pretty, I, I didn't know what to expect. And then I met her and we were only supposed to talk for like an hour. We ended up rapping out all day. We hung out all day and just got to know each other. And it was so special to me. She told me that the reason she wanted me to be her wish was the way I treated my family when my parents got a divorce on my MTV show. And that wasn't even something I noticed I was doing. I just care about my family. So I kept my brothers real close and like made sure that like, okay, if this is going on, like we're gonna stay tight. And she saw that. And from that experience, I came home and I was just bawling. I was bawling. I couldn't, I, I, we have to do something. We have to give back. The fact that I have this career right now and I'm 17 years old, it, I almost feel greedy. We need to give it back. We need to give back. And uh, that's when Sheckler Foundation started and our first thing was auctioning off my Range Rover, which I loved, you know, but it was material. It's what it, it is what it is. And we auctioned it off. And then I realized that I really liked working with autistic children. They're so pure so fun and just the smiles and the laughs you get when you drop in with them they lose their belly it's a really wild experience because their parents start crying because they never heard their kid laugh the foundation now has been going on for shoot almost 13 years yeah about 13 years and um, our main thing is be the change and be the change is as simple as like if you see someone hurting just go help them. Be the change you want to see, you know? What, what change do you want to see in your community? The way people are treating each other. It could even be community service or like a, a plan that's coming in for your city. What do you want to see change? Like actually just go out and be a part of something. Like be a part of where you live. You know, I grew up as a Christian. I went to church. I believed, but I, I didn't understand what it meant to really believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Like I had heard that. And I, I knew about that, but I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't feel it. I didn't really feel that when I envisioned it and when I really got deep into my mind of visualizing the Lord and Him on the cross and, and bleeding. And, it, and that's when it hit me. That's when it hit me that I really am forgiven for my sins. Like, I'm forgiven daily and do not waste it. Each day is another chance to do better than you did the day before. And... And that's really how I've been living the last like the last five years, five and a half years has really been focused on the Lord and really trying to follow his will for my life. And it's it's a it's the craziest thing. It's so special. It's awesome. I'm really here for a reason. I know it. I know it. To learn more about the Sheckler Foundation, visit Shecklerfoundation.org today. Stay tuned for Henriette Schoppelhaman's story after a brief message. During times of transition and unknown next steps, 
It's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Twenty twenty has brought a host of challenges to many of our lives, but none more than our country's first responders. The team at Jesus Calling has chosen 100 Jesus Calling devotions that have been specially selected for those heroes in our midst. There are hardcover editions of these 100 devotions for medical professionals, firefighters, law enforcement, and the armed forces. Find these Jesus Calling for First Responders editions exclusively at christianbook.com. Our next guest is the pastor of True Hope Community Church, Henriette Schapelhaman, who opens up about her unique relationship with God and how she followed her calling into ministry despite obstacles that made her feel as if she didn't belong. As Henriette's faith grew, it was tested greatly when her adopted son Harrison battled a debilitating addiction. After years of praying for Harrison and grappling with why God would allow this to happen, Henriette ultimately helped her son turn his life around and saw her prayers answered as her son's faith in God was restored. My name is Henriette Chapelhoman, and I am the pastor of True Hope Community Church. I am a mom, a wife, and I have my own coaching business, and I do lots of other things. I was born in the Netherlands and grew up there till I was 16 years old. And one of the weird things about me, and maybe there's lots of weird things about me, was that I believed from very early age. And then at eight, I very much remember telling people about Jesus. I was telling people about God because he was real to me. I spoke to him. He was real in my life. So I talked about him as if he was a real person, which he was to me. But apparently that was really strange in my culture and in that time. I just didn't know any better. I talked to God. He answered me. And it was just normal. And it was just part of everyday conversation for me. It's an interesting journey, actually. I got married at 18. And we went to that church, and I love the Bible, and was just really thinking, if I wasn't a woman, it would be so great, because I could be a pastor. Then God led us from the church we were going to, to a Mennonite Brethren Church. We lived in San Jose at the time. But God called me there into ministry. It was a half day of prayer, and I'd been kind of forced to attend that. And for me, it was like, what do you do for half a day praying? That seemed like forever to me. And I'd never done that before. Well, surprisingly, the time went really fast. I took a walk. I praised God. I read through a hymnal. I prayed through my list. So I, after doing all those things, 
I sat just content with God and thinking, wow, this is cool. And I was just quiet. And the sun was coming through the windows. And suddenly, out of nowhere, in my head, I heard almost like audible voice, I'm calling you to become pastor to women and to go back to school. And I trembled for about two hours after that. I've never done that before, never done that since. And I asked God two prayer requests. I wanted to make sure it wasn't me calling myself. And he answered both of those in 28 hours. It would mean quitting my job. And so that would be an income issue. And he was supportive. The other thing that I'd prayed about prior to the call was that somebody would be called to become the uh, Sunday school president of the adult Sunday school class. And that happened the next day. They asked me to be the president of the Sunday school class. Before I went home, actually, from that call, I went straight to the senior pastor's house. I explained to him what had happened, and he said, well, it's clearly a call from God, and we just have to figure out how to make that work. We had more prayers confirmed, and it was clear we need to move here. So in November 93, we moved to Redmond, Washington. And at that point, we had to look for another church, and they didn't have Mennonite Brethren churches here. So we started on a whole quest, like, okay, God, you moved us here. I believe the call is still on my life. Where am I supposed to be? So we attended different churches, church shopping, but really, and we really didn't like it. And I got sick of it at some point, and I took out the yellow pages, and I circled all the possible churches, and I called them, and I asked what was happening, and a lot of them had women's ministries already all sorted out, and I kind of felt like, okay, so there's no space. And then I called this one church, which turns out to be a free Methodist church, but I didn't know what that was. So I called them, and they said, well, we're in the process of figuring out our women's ministry. And then they also were in the process of figuring out their small group ministry, which both of those is what I had been doing. I'm like, hmm, this might be the clue. So we visited there and we really liked it. And then we visited there again and we felt like this is where we're supposed to be. So my husband and I had been trying to get pregnant and that wasn't working. So about 10 years after we were married, we started pursuing adoption because we'd done everything up to in vitro and we contacted the adoption agency in California and started the process. So it was an open adoption. We wrote a letter and we were chosen by this mom in May 92 and Harrison was born in June 92. And so I knew beyond the shadow of the doubt that Harrison had been selected for us, that this was the child God has for us. And I remember at seven, we were driving somewhere, he was sleeping in the back seat, and I was thinking, he's just the perfect child. He is so wonderful. He is loving and kind and generous and funny and just wonderful. 
And he was <laughs> at seven. And then at eight, an anger started to develop and that kept growing. And we had had those conversations throughout his life. Basically, he knew he was adopted and he knew we loved him. That wasn't the question. But at four, I remember, or five, he was saying like something about that he had come out of my stomach and I told him no. And we kind of talked about that and he was angry. He was hitting something, I forget what. And I said to him, Harrison, do you think I would love you more if you came out of my stomach? And he indicated that probably was the case. And at that time, there was more the cognitive that somebody had rejected him, I think. He really struggled with the abandonment and rejection. We didn't know that until later, but that was the issue. And in fact, at eight, he self-reports, he started taking sips of alcohol. We just didn't know that. And then at 11, he started drinking more. We didn't know that either. And by 13, 14, he started using marijuana and was still drinking. I knew about the marijuana and I didn't really know about the drinking. I learned about the drinking when he was in ninth grade because he got kicked out of Christian school for bringing a half a gallon of tequila to school and going off campus and drinking with other kids. And I didn't believe it. I just thought they were being ridiculous. But that's when we pulled him out of school and I started homeschooling him. But then as the addiction uh, progressed and he got in trouble with the law and he got into juvenile drug court and was sent to uh, treatment. And I, I remember in my car just crying and praying and saying, God, why is this happening? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out loud, in fact, probably shouting and saying, God, why didn't you just tell me no 17 years ago instead of this? And then saying to him, how can you ask me to sacrifice my son, my only son. And it's helped me to just thank him for the experience because it allowed me to understand the pain and grief God must have gone through. At 17, he was still in drug court. He became a better addict a better user. He became better at breaking the law, better at getting around the rules. Um, he went to at least 10 plus detoxes, six treatments, and none of it worked. He completed some. He bailed out of others. I always was in drug court with him and was there to support him, tried to help him choose the right things. Harrison accepted Jesus when he was three and was baptized in fifth grade by me. So he believed, but he had turned his back on God. Um, I'm a firm believer that the road home needs to stay open, just like the father of the prodigal son stood waiting for his son to return. We need to have the road open. And so we just made the rule, Harrison, you're welcome home at any time. 
But if you choose to use, you choose to leave. I just knew I needed God and I needed God to fix this and I needed help. I needed prayer. And so I would send prayer requests out to my Gmail list of 35 people and they would pray. And things would continue to get worse, but my faith also grew. I remember laying on my hardwood floor in my office and just sometimes for an hour even with my head on my arm, just praying, Jesus, please help me. Jesus, please help me and crying. Because what else is there to do when your child is just completely blowing up his life? Nothing works. Super sad. There were all sorts of other things God showed me in this process. But Harrison's life continued um, progressing in the drugs. People thought it was enabling. But I was a firm believer that my job was to hang on to God and hang on to Harrison. That I basically was between them because he wasn't connecting with God. So I felt like I was the conduit, and that was my job. During that time, I had uh, written my book, The Story Lives, Leading a Missional Revolution. It's all about that everybody has a story, and that our stories are meant to be told so people can see them, so that people can find a road to Jesus. It's like, I know Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus can heal. I believe he's going to heal Harrison, that he has a plan for his life. And I'm not giving up on that. And I believe it's going to be through prayer and through his people. God allowed Harrison's appendix to burst. That's when he called me in a panic to come get him. He didn't want to go to the emergency room or anything like that. So we didn't actually know at that time what it was. The following week, I did get him to go to the emergency room. They knew something was wrong. They transported him to the hospital. But they saw an addict, and they didn't see a patient. And so they treated him like an addict, and they weren't willing to work with him and adjust based on what he could handle. So he left against medical advice. And for a while, it got better because his appendix had burst, so all that pain was less. But then it got worse, and I would sit with him. And God had given me Psalm 91 as a promise about Harrison, and it's clear that he's dying. He's saying himself, I'm dying. And I'm saying to God, Lord, I know he can't be dying. It looks like he's dying, but I know he can't be dying. As you said, that you are going to rescue him and show him your salvation. He couldn't function, and we didn't know what was wrong. And Harrison said, okay, I will do whatever you tell me. I'll go to treatment if that's what you think I should do. I'll go to the hospital if that's what you think I should do. So we felt like, you know what, we need to go to Harborview. So we convinced Harrison, we got him in the car, the last 10 minutes of our drive, randomly, Harrison hits the dashboard and says, God, help me. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go. This is it. (laughs) They took him into surgery and discovered he had lived with a burst appendix. And they said a couple more hours and his small intestines would have burst and would have been a horribly painful death. 
So for a month, he was trapped. We set up a bed in our living room. I stayed with him. I managed his meds. And that month was enough for him to decide that he wanted a different life. Oh, he is very hopeful. He He's passionately in love with Jesus, and he prays all the time. He listens to his Bible all the time, and his faith is super strong. So, I'm reading from Jesus Calling, August 30th. There's no place so desolate that you cannot find me there. When Hagar fled from her mistress, Sarah, into the wilderness, she thought she was utterly alone and forsaken. But Hagar encountered me in that desolate place. There she addressed me as the living one who sees me. Through that encounter with my presence, she gained courage to return to her mistress. No set of circumstances could ever isolate you from my loving presence. Not only do I see you always, I see you as a redeemed saint gloriously radiant in my righteousness. That is why I take great delight in you and rejoice over you with singing. Without Jesus, I would not be standing. I mean, first and foremost, you need Jesus. And if you don't yet know Jesus, it's a great time to reach out to him or at least reach out to someone who knows him. To learn more about Henriette's work, please visit HenrietteShoppelHuman.com. If you'd like to hear more stories about the power of faith in overcoming addiction, check out our interviews with the brave women of the Next Door Addiction Treatment Center. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with writer and evangelist Angus Buchan. Honing his skills in the field of agriculture, Angus was known to be a hard-working, hard-drinking man. Dealing with the rigors of running a farm in Africa through droughts, financial issues, and a cancer diagnosis, Angus came to a moment in his life where he'd reached the end of his own strength to keep moving forward. He talks about an encounter with God that turned everything around. You know, my business was going bankrupt. My marriage was finished. I had terminal cancer, and Jesus healed me. I had never seen anything like this. And I sat there with my mouth open. And then right at the end, one of the laymen said, if you want Jesus to be your savior, we want you to come forward now. And I I stood up, me, Jill, and all our children, just like a, a gander, a goose, and all the goslings. And we walked straight to the front with lots of other people. And that was the defining moment of my life. Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.